Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 27 years we have offered voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and moderator of today's forum. It is my pleasure to welcome the second speaker in our fall 2007 series. Carrie Kennedy has worked in defense of human rights since 1981 when she investigated abuses by U.S. immigration officials against refugees from El Salvador. She has led more than 40 human rights delegations to 30 different countries, working on such diverse issues as child labor, indigenous land rights, ethnic violence, judicial independence, environmental justice, and women's rights. She serves on the board of directors of the Robert F. Kennedy Memorial, a nonprofit organization committed to challenging social injustice and inspired by the work of her late father. She is chair of the Amnesty International Leadership Council, a board member of the Lawyers Committee for Human Rights, and a member of the Massachusetts and D.C. Bar Associations. Her acclaimed book, Speak Truth to Power, Human Rights Defenders Who Are Changing Our World, features interviews and photo portraits of human rights activists who have dramatically changed the course of events in their communities and in their countries, including Elie Wiesel, Desmond Tutu, Marion Wright Edelman, and Jose Horta Ramos, all of whom have spoken here at the Westminster Town Hall Forum. In this time of growing cynicism, about public service, Carrie Kennedy's life and work exemplify for all generations the fundamental principle that, in her words, we must be responsible for those who suffer. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Town Hall Forum, Carrie Kennedy. very much. It's great to be back in Minneapolis. I was just here last week when we opened Speak Truth to Power at the Children's Theater, and I have to say it was so deeply moving for me not only to be, uh, not only to open the play, but to do it in partnership with some of the um, greatest human rights organizations recognized around the world, and they are all based here in Minneapolis. Minnesota Advocates for Human Rights, the Center for Victims of Torture, the American Refugee Committee, and the University of Minnesota Center for Human Rights. Um, we worked with the Bar Association's Continuing Legal Education, um, St. Kate's, St. Olaf's, the uh, University of Minnesota and others. So I'm really, really happy to be back, and I feel like this is my second home these days. I started working in human rights in 1981, and I think there's no time in the last 26 years that our work in this field and the lessons we learn from the human rights defenders is more important. The challenges we face can feel daunting. The challenge of addressing the more than 60 million gender-selective abortions in countries such as China and India, where male babies are prized above females. The challenge of stopping the violence in Russia, where 14,000 wives are murdered by their husbands every single year. The challenge in Rwanda, Bosnia, and the Dominican Republic of the Congo, where nearly 
Two million women have been raped and mutilated as a tool of warfare, and sons are forced at Machete Point to rape their own mothers. Where the soldiers who perpetrate these unspeakable crimes go free, while the victim, victims are ostracized. The challenge of stopping the genocide in Darfur, where the government of Sudan has financed and armed the Janjaweed militias resulting in the slaughter of nearly half a million people and the displacement of 2.5 million more. The challenge of stopping violence in our own country, where the tragedy of Virginia Tech last year and the Cleveland High School yesterday are only the latest result of nearly unfettered access to armaments in our country. The challenge of stopping the war in Iraq, where the aban without abandoning the people who we, have now, we now have an obligation to protect. The challenge of creating hope in a world where 10 million people die each year of preventable diseases. The challenge of transforming the lives of the 250 million children around the world who are caught in the hell of child labor. The challenge of building equity in a world where over a billion people, most of them women and children, live on less than a dollar a day. And the challenge in the wake of September 11th of protecting our national security while refusing to give in to the call to diminish our commitment to our core values. The challenge of closing Guantanamo, stopping rendition, shuttering secret CIA prisons, holding every person who allowed torture in our name at Abu Ghraib and elsewhere responsible for their unspeakable acts, no matter how far up the chain of command it goes. throwing out secret evidence and demanding the Geneva Conventions be respected. The United States is the richest and most powerful country on earth, the only superpower in the globe, and yet we do not feel secure. In many fundamental ways, our boat has been rocked by a series of powerful waves which have shaken our faith in the very institutions upon which our civil society is based. Politically, we have seen two presidents face impeachment. Our government failed to protect us from the terrorist attacks on September 11th and failed to grapple with the devastation of Hurricane Katrina. Our insurance industry then failed to keep their promises and repay the victims of that terrible storm. Our financial institutions have been rocked by scandals in the savings and loan industry at Enron, WorldCom, and more recently, the mortgage crisis, where millions of Americans now face losing their very homes. The pedophile scandal at the Catholic Church not only undermined faith in the church leadership, but as the church pays out tremendous settlements, its role as the largest provider of healthcare, education, and anti-poverty programs, second only to the federal government, is jeopardized, putting the most vulnerable at additional risk. Our usual escapes to Hollywood has found some of the most recognizable stars addicted to drugs and alcohol, while our sports heroes reveal their abuse of steroids. Um, and then global warming threatens the very future of our planet, and our leaders seem unable or unwilling to make the tough decisions to head off certain disaster. The American economy is based 
on investment in the future. And history shows that when Americans are scared, they don't invest, putting our economy and therefore the worldwide economy at serious risk. Our institutions, political, financial, spiritual, have failed us. We can no longer pass off our future to our traditional leaders. The message is clear. Each one of us must take responsibility ourselves for molding our collective future. As a nation, we have never experienced the overwhelming threat nor felt the fear and anguish about the future that we must confront today. So this is a time to look to people from our own country and around the world who know what it is to face terrifying danger and react with confidence, integrity, moral courage, and effectiveness. I started working in human rights, as you heard, 26 years ago as a sophomore in college as an intern at Amnesty International in Washington, D.C. I was assigned the task of documenting abuses committed by U.S. immigration officials against refugees from El Salvador. Beyond my particular assignment, I learned of refuseniks in Russia, anti-apartheid leaders in South Africa, democracy activists in Chile. The cause was compelling, the enemy was dangerous and powerful, but I found myself surrounded by Davids who with little more than the slingshots of their hearts and nerve and sinew to support them, stood up against a world full of Goliaths. Looking back, it seems like the angels prevailed. Military dictatorships ruled throughout Latin America. Today, the only one left standing is Castro in Cuba. At the time, communism dominated Eastern Europe. Today, there's not a communist tyrant left standing. At the time, South Africa suffered under the agony of apartheid. Today, South Africa has enjoyed several freely elected governments elected by a majority of their people. At the time, the leading human rights defender from South Korea was in forced exile in Boston, having been told by his government that should he return to his country, he would be assassinated. A few years ago, that same exile, Kim Dae-jung, now President Kim Dae-jung, won the Nobel Peace Prize for opening up talks with North Korea. And at the time, women's rights were not on the international agenda. Today, CEDAW, the Women's Rights Convention, has been ratified by 182 nations, but not our own, so there's still a ways to go. All of these changes came about, not because governments wanted them to. In fact, in almost every case, governments tried to stop them, and not because great militaries wanted them to. In fact, in almost every case, great armies tried to stop them, and not because enormous multinational corporations wanted them to. In fact, in almost every case, multinational corporations tried to stop them. But because people with few resources beyond their own determination fought for human rights, individuals created change. They harnessed the dream of freedom and they made it come true. And their efforts created a ripple effect, encouraging others building a tidal wave which swept down some of the mightiest walls of repression. I spent two and a half years traveling around the world and interviewing the most courageous people on earth. They risk imprisonment and torture and death for basic rights which most of us are lucky enough to take for granted. 
Again and again, they enter the mouth of hell in local communities and come face to face with unspeakable human agony. And while others respond with indifference or hand-wringing, they relieve suffering and save lives. Some are well-known. Václav Havel, Elie Wiesel, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, Archbishop Tutu, but most are unknown beyond the borders of their countries. I ask people why they get involved when the chance of success is so remote and the personal consequences are so grave. What is the source of their courage? What is their hope for the future? Do they believe in God? The answers were deep and full of wisdom. It was Elie Wiesel, who survived the Holocaust as a child, who said, my dream for the future is that your children won't have my past. And Archbishop Tutu, who said, we don't have a God who says, ah, gotcha. We have a God who lifts us up and dusts us off and tells us to try it again. And to me, those are the, the two most important points about human rights defenders. On the one hand, they're trying to stop the offenses, and on the other hand, they have this great optimistic view of humanity. What started out as a survey of the human rights situation around the globe quickly became a spiritual journey about the best humanity has to offer, even under the worst of circumstances. I'd like to share with you encounters with a few of the defenders from Speak Truth to Power, which clarified my thinking and inspired my work. Um, the first person I want to talk to you about is a woman called Juliana Dogbazi. And uh, Juliana was, is from Ghana. When she was, um, well, before she was born, her grandfather stole about $2 worth of goods from a woman on the street. Um, and he was caught and he denied it, and the woman cursed him. And people in his family started to get sick, and some of them started to die. So he went to the local soothsayer, and he said, what should I do? And the soothsayer said, you have offended the gods, and so you have to sacrifice a virgin. So the guy does something wrong, and the girl gets sacrificed. Um, a few years later, he died. But his daughter was pregnant. And from the moment Juliana was born, everybody in her community knew she was the virgin to be sacrificed. And when she was seven years old, her parents took her to a kind of a harem. And um, she was not allowed to contact her family. She was never allowed to go home. Her clothes were taken from her. She was just given a sheet to wear. Um, and she worked 14-hour days, seven days a week, and she was never paid a penny. When she was about 12 or 13, she was raped for the first time. And after that, she was uh, available to this man who ran the harem um, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. When she was about 21, she strapped her to one of her children, her, her youngest baby, the, you know, who came from one of the rapes, uh, to her back, and her other child, whose name was Wonder. Um, she held his hand, and she walked for miles and miles and miles through the woods and got to the city of Accra, which is the capital of Ghana. And she learned a trade, she learned how to sew. But then she went to every legislator in, in the capital, 
and she told her story of what had happened to her again and again and again. She re-entered that torture chamber, and she said, we have to put a stop to that, to this practice. The Trocosi practice is what it was called. And within a year of her emancipation from sexual slavery, she had gotten past the legislature a ban on sexual slavery in Ghana for the first time in the history of that country. And that was in 1999. Now, I tell you that story because I think so often when we think about all of these problems and challenges we face as a country and as a world, we think, there's nothing I can do about it. I am not a senator or a congressman or the president of the United States. I don't even really know how it works there in Washington. Um, there's not much that can be done. I'm just going to turn on my television, take care of my kids, and try and get my work done, which is enough of a challenge for the day. But with Juliana, Juliana is a woman who never stepped foot inside of schoolroom uh, after she was seven years old. And I asked her what kept her going, and she said, I couldn't think about why I can't. I just had to keep thinking about all those women left behind me. And I kept saying to myself, I must. And so we need to gather that sense of I must, because the people in this room and the people lucky enough to listen to a radio here in the United States of America have so much far more resources and capacity to create change than other people around the world do. So that is the story of Juliana. I want to also um, talk to you about a fellow called Kofi Woods from Liberia. And Kofi was... Uh, worked for the, he started the Catholic radio station under um, Taylor, when Taylor was the dictator there. And that became the only voice of dissent, the only voice of opposition to the Taylor regime. And um, one day, the minister of justice, the actual minister of justice, and his three thugs came and picked up Kofi off the street, and they um, brought him to a prison cell, and they tortured him for several days, and then they left him there to rot. And uh, eventually Kofi got out, and there was a change in that country. The UN came in, took over the country for a few years. There was a free election two years ago, and Kofi is now the minister of um, Let's see, he's, he's one of the ministers. He's a minister of labor. And the very same uh, justice minister and those very same three thugs are now facing trial for war crimes. And where do you think they're keeping them? In the very same cell where they had left Kofi. And so Kofi went to visit them one day. And, um, he's, and they looked terrified to see him, as you can imagine. And the, he said, I've come to see if you've been tortured. And the Minister of Justice said, not yet. And um, Kofi said, well, I'm here to assure you, you will not be tortured. Now, there was not a lawyer in Liberia who was willing to defend them because they had done such terrible atrocities to the people there. And Kofi Woods stood up and said, I will be their defense attorney. 
For that, he was ostracized by his community. His own mother said to him, I just don't understand how you could take their side. And Kofi's response was, we're trying to build a new country. And we want to build a country that has a fair system of justice. And if these people can get a fair trial, then anyone can get a fair trial. And I'm here to defend our system of justice. Um, now, I understand that you had Marion Wright Edelman here a couple of years ago. And I would just want to tell you a little story about her because she is such a hero to me. She was the first um, woman and the first African-American to pass the bar in Mississippi. And she did that in the 1960s in order to, um, to defend civil rights activists. And she said, you know, I was blessed at a young age to find a cause that was so important to me, it was worth risking my life for, it was worth dying for. And that has made every day worth living. And she told this story, um, she said, you know, courage is not about a lack of fear. Courage is just hanging in there when you're scared to death she said, one thing I remember about working with Dr. Martin Luther King is how scared he looked. I remember him saying how terrified he was of the police dogs in the back of the car when he was being taken out to rural Georgia after he had been arrested. And he used to say, you can be scared, but you shouldn't let it paralyze you. You don't have to see the whole stairway to take the first step. If you can't run, walk. If you can't walk, crawl. If you can't crawl, just keep moving. Just keep moving. Speak truth to power. And then the last story I want to tell you is about a fellow called Koigi Wawamwari. And I just, I get a point just for pronouncing that name. <laughs> and uh, Koigi has, holds the record at the Amnesty International for having the, the highest number of urgent actions of any person on earth. An urgent action is something that goes out to the whole world if a prisoner gets picked up and they are afraid he's gonna be tortured. And Kuigi did this you know, every other week for several years, so he holds the record on that. And um, one time he was in prison for uh, criticizing the regime of Daniel Arab Moy in Kenya, and they put him on death row. And he said at the time he was on death row for, for criticizing Moy, that Ken Sarawiwa, the Nobel Prize laureate, was also on death row in Nigeria for criticizing his government. And he said that Ken Sarawiwa was executed. And when he was executed, there was this uh, started with a small group of people writing letters and sending emails in the United States. And that started a groundswell around the world, put pressure on politicians around the world. Eventually, um, President Clinton became involved in this. And there was worldwide condemnation of the government of Nigeria for executing Ken Sarawiwa. And Koigi said because he was executed there, 
and there was such condemnation of the government of Nigeria, it made it politically impossible for Moy to execute me in Kenya. And he said, you know, as Americans, you, your country is so powerful that we and the rest of the world believe you know what's going on in our countries because you have so much influence over what goes on in our countries. So when there's a human rights violation and you don't say anything, we assume that you're endorsing it because your government is so involved in what our countries are doing. But when you speak up, it sends a ripple effect. And you can say lo save lives in places that you've never heard of and of people whose names you can't even pronounce. So I think that as Americans, are, we have a special duty to, um, to be aware of what's going on and to be outraged by injustice and to speak up when we see something that's not fair. These heroes are just like many of us. They wake up in the morning, they go to school, they kiss their kids, they forge ahead as students or teachers or lawyers or journalists or members of religious orders, all trying in their own ways to do what is right and decent and sometimes to enlighten other people about their rights and responsibilities, about the world they live in, and about their capacity to, cre to create a different world. Their work is founded on an immutable principle of fairness. It appeals to the good side, the generous side, the instinct for justice, the instinct that says we can make a difference no matter how insurmountable the problems may seem. And that same impulse engages us in the struggle for human rights that echoes the ancient Greeks who believed it was ennobling to take part in the life of the nation. It too is an appeal to the spirit. It is shared by all those who survive torture or abuse or go on to take up the cause of human rights, people like Digna and Juliana and Marian and Kuigi and so many others around the world who have never given in to the forces of futility nor the temptation to violence. And they inspire us to embrace our beliefs and hold fast to our dreams. I grew up in the Judeo-Christian tradition where we painted our prophets on ceilings and we sealed our saints in stained glass. And standing in this room, his words really ring true. They were superhuman and untouchable. And so, in a sense, we were freed from the burden of their challenge here on Earth. But these people are living, breathing human beings in our midst. And their determination and valor and commitment in the face of overwhelming danger challenges each of us to take up the torch for a more decent society. Today, we are blessed by certain people who are gifts from God, and they are teachers who show us not how to be saints, but how to be fully human. And I'd like to end with these lines from a poem by Langston Hughes. He said, Oh, let America be America again, the land that never has been yet, and yet must be, the land where everyone is free, the land that's mine, the poor man's, Indians, Negroes, me, who made America, whose sweat and blood, whose faith and pain, whose hand at the foundry, 
whose plow in the rain must bring back our mighty dream again. We, the people, must redeem our land, the mines, the plants, the rivers, the mountains, and the endless plain, all, all the stretch of these great green states, and make America, America again. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kerry Kennedy. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, Senior Minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is human rights advocate, Kerry Kennedy. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience at Westminster, I'd like to thank the forum's many spo sponsors and supporters, especially the co-sponsor of today's event, the Institute for Global Citizenship at McAllister College. We invite you to join us for the next Town Hall Forum on Thursday, October 25th, when our guest will be Gregory Boyle, whose work with gang-involved youth in East Los Angeles has transformed lives and earned national recognition. Additional information on upcoming forums is available online at eWestminster.org. And now, Kerry Kennedy, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. First question has to do with the role of forgiveness and reconciliation in the work in which you have witnessed in the search for human rights. Uh, any comment on the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions around the world and the role of forgiveness? Yeah, I, um, I, I've talked to quite a, a number of people about this, um, and especially Archbishop Tutu, who of course, um, thanks to St. Thomas, will now be appearing at St. Thomas. <laughs> um, the challenge of Truth and Reconciliation Commissions around the world is that, of course, they're usually in countries in transition. And um, so they are not, uh, they're, they're not everything everybody wants them to be or needs them to be because they are always a negotiated settlement. Um, the model, of course, is the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. Um, I've talked to a number of torture victims about reconciliation and about forgiveness. And um, one of them put it this way. He said, you know, um, actually, let me just tell you this story first. There was a survey of torture victims around the world. This is a, a while ago, maybe 15 years ago. And um, they asked victims of torture whether they forgive their torturers. And inevitably, the victims themselves were the first to forgive. And their families were less willing. And their communities 
were, were, most, were least willing to forgive and most demanding of justice. And I think in some ways that's because um, God endows those who have suffered profoundly with profound wisdom. And I talked to one of those torture victims about it, and he said, you know, if you hold your anger with you, then you are paralyzed by it, and there's nothing else that you can do with your life, so you, you kind of have to let it go. And um, I thought that was, you know, very interesting and enormously courageous and a pretty good lesson for, for the rest of us as we go through, through life in general. Questioner asks, I work with kindergartners through third graders in doing community service projects, dealing with the environment and animal and human communities. Is there a way to talk to such a young group, these are kindergartners through third graders, such a young group about human rights abuses and issues? Um, I think absolutely. You know, the, uh, if you spend any time around children, you are going to hear them say, that's not fair. And that is really the basis, everybody's nodding their heads in the audience here. Um, that's really the basis of international human rights. Um, we want things to be fair and we feel angry when they're not fair. There's, there are several things that you can do. One thing that I did, I have done at home, is uh, we say a, a prayer when we eat food at night. Thank you, God, for this good food. Thank you for the hands that made it. So we have a long discussion. Who are the hands that made it? Well, what would it be like to be a farm worker? What would your life be like? Would you be able to go to school? How would you survive? Would you be protected? Would it be scary to be in a country where you don't have papers? What would happen to your family, et cetera? So I think there are those opportunities with children. And I'll tell you one um, uh, experiment or game that I played with the, with the third grade class recently, where we um, played musical chairs. Do you know how to play musical chairs? Okay, so we played musical chairs and everybody went around and then the last person got out and I said, how did it feel to be excluded? And first, the, of course, the first kid who got out said, I hated being excluded and I hated not being able to play and, um, and watching everybody else be able to participate and I couldn't. And then we did it again, this time we took away the chairs, but we didn't take away the people. And so everybody continued to play, but they had to share first 20 chairs for 20 kids, then 19, then 18, then 17. And it was left with 20 kids trying to share one chair. And, um, and they had a wonderful time. And they all agreed that it was a much better experience to be working as a community with fewer resources than throwing each other out. So I think that that's one way to talk to kids. <laughs> uh, one of our listeners asked us to stop softball questions, so here we go. Yeah. Taking us from the kindergarten to the Supreme Court. What is the effect of the Supreme Court ruling that rendition is permissible? Um, I think that uh, what the, the Supreme Court actually, um, just this week, refused to listen to a rendition case. So, um, and that was an awful shame for our country because it sends the signal around the world that our courts are refusing to be involved in it and that the White House has the power to, um, 
to uh, participate in what is clearly an illegal um, uh, activity which goes against our very values as a country. Um, I don't think that the Supreme Court has ruled that rendition is permissible, so I'd, I'd, um, I don't think that's quite correct, but they have refused to get involved with the seminal case on it, um, and that just happened this week. What impact have you seen on the perceived legitimacy of American voices speaking out for human rights, given the alleged abuses of human rights by the U.S. government in recent years? It's had a devastating impact to our work around the world. Um, I think that uh, that we are no longer able to um, to condemn what other countries do, and our soldiers have been put in harm's way because if we are not um, uh, complying with the Geneva Conventions to other people's soldiers, and when they pick up our soldiers, they can um, also fail to comply. So we've lost that capacity. Um, and just in general around the world, you know, people say that the United States is the most powerful world, powerful country because of our great economy or because our extraordinary military. But the truth is our most our strongest asset is our values and the love that people have for this country because of its values of freedom and um, and the integrity of the individual. And that's what um, so many of our fathers and grandfathers and uh, and others fought for in World War One, World War Two, and Korea, et cetera. So I think that we have um, it's had a devastating impact. And by contrast, I have a friend who has just returned from Burma, and it's one of the few countries in the world now where you can go as an American and be lauded in the streets because you're an American. And why is that? Because our country has been consistently on the side of democracy and against the tyrants in that country. And that's what we ought to be doing everywhere in the world. A question that follows up on that. Under this current administration, we have lost the power and prestige we once had in the world. Will we ever get it back so we can affect change in the world? What are the steps we need to take to recover that power and prestige? Okay, well, I think, you know, um, first of all, we have to, everybody, we've got a presidential um, election coming up. We need a new president. This president is incapable of redeeming our country. <laughs> so, and I, I, I just want to say, um, you know, of course I am a Democrat with that big last name I have, but I, I've been working in human rights uh, uh, for a quarter century, and we've worked with Republican administrations, Democratic administrations on both sides of the aisle, and um, it's just simply this administration in particular is impossible on these issues of, of human rights and civil liberties. So I think that that's a real problem. I think that there are ways that the United States can create real change around the world. Number one, by siding with, with the people in different countries instead of with the, uh, with the dictators. Um, and by um, doing, you know, there's simple things I, uh, that we could be associated with. For instance, now, 
um, in Lebanon two years ago, the bombs that were dropped were called USA bombs because they all came from the United States. You know, we sold them to Israel and they were all being bombed. So, that, so that's what they were called. Um, as opposed to 25 years ago, 30 years ago, when they were handing out milk to school students in, um, in Morocco because there wasn't enough money to buy milk there. It was called USA Milk. It was actually called Kennedy Milk, but it was <laughs> technical about it. But it was, you know, it was associated with our country. And um, that's what we need. We should be associated with aid, with, with fighting disease, with stopping tuberculosis and, and AIDS and malaria, and not with, with supplying bombs that are going to be dropped on people and other types of armaments. What do you think of the statement, there can be no peace among nations until there is peace among religions? Um, I don't really buy that, to tell you the truth. I think that, uh, that religion, I think that religion plays a strong role and that uh, religious leaders and lay people can make an enormous difference by one-to-one -one contact with people in other countries. And I think that there's been enormous good done from those programs as we saw in Northern Ireland and as is happening now to a limited extent in the Middle East with, between Israel and Palestine. But um, I think what people want all over the world are the same things, are basic, you know, there, there are a few basic things that they want. They want to have security in their homes they want to make sure that they have a job that, that pays a living wage so that they can feed their children. They want to make sure their children are going to have a good education and that, they, and that their kids will have a better lives than they do. Those are, that's basically what people want. And so if you can supply those or get, the, um, get to a state where that's happening, then the particular government they're under is not quite as important, and that's what we ought to be working on. We ought to be working on basic human rights. As you know, we have a number of high school students in the audience today. One of them asks, what's your take on the Jena 6 case? Those are the young African-American students, oh, right. the high school students. Right. Oh, God, what's that awful? That was, it was, it was so devastating, that case. And I have to say that the reaction of people across our country to come and march and to say that this was unacceptable and um, un-American and come to the aid of those African-American students was really very, very heartening. I thought that was, uh, you know, and a lot of young people who participated in, those, in that march was extraordinary. You mentioned the uh, recent local controversy about Archbishop Tutu uh, not being permitted, then being invited at the end to uh, speak at a university here. Uh, what does that instance or other instances you know of tell you about speaking truth to power? Well, I think it's, you know, it's controversial to speak truth to power and it's hard. And, um, and people are scared of it. And so they don't want responsibility for it. And so they would rather just make it go away than try to confront this. 
Um, but I think somebody with the integrity and the extraordinary um, history of resistance and peace and quest for justice as Archbishop Tutu is an example to all of us of how to do it right. And um, I'm just so glad that people in this town will get a chance to hear him. A number of questions, uh, questions about how you found those whom you interviewed in your book. Uh, can you describe that process? And sure. uh, some of them obviously um, were famous. I had, I had been working in human rights when I started doing uh, researching Speak Truth to Power. I'd been working in human rights for about 15 years, so I knew a lot of the human rights defenders um, personally. I was looking for people, I wanted a diversity of men and women, I wanted a geographical diversity, and I wanted a diversity of, of subjects.